good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Mary Daly. I'm the academic tutor here at college, for those of you who don't know me, and I'd like to welcome you all uh, most sincerely to uh, this evening's lecture, and I'd like especially to welcome our speaker, uh, Professor David Rudd. Um, Sorry, there's just two more people coming in. Uh, may I first just announce or, or acquaint you with the safety procedures, that if the fire alarm sounds, it will be a real fire. Um, and so if you could uh, leave the building either by this exit or the other exit and convene in the green space uh, on the outside the building, <coughs> please. Um, so this is our last lecture um, in our four-part lecture series, the annual series, the GTC lecture series, which is an annual series at our college. And our objective is to, at these lecture series, is to take uh, an issue and to consider it from a multidimensional perspective, but with a particular reference to the unifying vision and goal of college, which is to uh, develop a, a deeper understanding of the complexity of human welfare in the modern world. And the principal, Sir David Watson, and I chose the topic of children and children's worlds deliberately for that purpose because we felt that there we still know far too little about children's welfare and our efforts to understand welfare from a children's perspective are still at a rudimentary stage. So in this lecture series thus far, we've had a lecture on human rights and um, from a children's perspective. We've had a lecture on uh, children and the internet. We've had the session, the last session was on children and violence. And um, this evening we turn to, I was saying to David earlier, I think it might be a lighter topic, uh, children's literature and the world as it's expressed through children's literature. And we, we couldn't have a better speaker. Uh, David is one of the foremost academic experts on uh, children's literature in this country. He is a professor of children's literature at the University of Roehampton and an emeritus professor still at the University of Bolton, where he was prior to coming to Roehampton earlier this year. Um, he has published very widely on the topic, having written over 100 books, or 100 papers, not books, sorry, David. That's, too, that's too much for, for one career. Um, but he has written several really important books, and his most recent one is uh, entitled Reading the Child in Children's Literature, which was published by Routledge in 2013. Uh, earlier books that he's written include Enid Blyton and the Mystery of Children's Literature, and a communication studies approach to children's literature, which focused on the work of Roald Dahl. He's also the editor of the Routledge Companion to Children's <coughs> Literature. Um, his work focuses particularly on uh, the cultural content of children's literature and the construction of children in this literature. It has been said of his work that he takes a lively and controversial look at the critical representation of children in children's literature, arguing for a more open and eclectic approach, one especially that celebrates the diverse power, appeal, and possibilities of children's literature. He also seeks to embed children's literature in a broader context and to interrogate readers' responses from various theoretical perspectives. I think both of these perspectives, the focus of the child and the focus on the response to children's literature, are extremely important in the context of this, uh, of this lecture series and tonight's lecture. And the theme is children's worlds through children's literature. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor David Rudd. Thank you very much, Mary. Can I live up to that? I'm not sure. Um, and thanks for having me, inviting me to this uh, prestigious series of lectures. Right, I've got a, I think the talk's about 50 minutes long, um, so I'll see how you do, how you, can, how you monitor it. Um, and there's lots of pictures if you get bored. So what is happening in children's literature today? Is it in crisis? Is the Daily Mail right when it reacts to much modern children's literature as being sick-lit? That is, a disturbing phenomenon involving tales of teenage cancer, self-harm and suicide, citing titles like these and finding them unacceptable. 
Works, for example, like John Green's The Fault in Our Stars, which has just been made into a film. A sensitive and witty novel dealing with teenagers with cancer, from which, incidentally, about 86,000 worldwide die each year. But issues like Sick Lit are newsworthy, of course, only because children's books are conceptualised rather differently. Differently from works about those even younger teenagers like Romeo and Juliet, for, for instance. Yet these works, just a small minority, are seen to offend by stepping across some invisible line. It is invisible because children's books usually are defined negatively in terms of what they should not be. And such comments are common. Thus, a few years earlier, Anne Fine, a children's writer and laureate, um, alluded to this invisible line, which he felt had been overstepped. In the 50s, there was always a rescue at the end of the book, And it was always a middle-class rescue. That was felt to be unrealistic, and so there was a move away from that. Books for children became much more concerned with realism, or what we see as realism. But it may be that realism has gone too far in literature for children. There is some... Am I in your way? Yes, I'm not mind. Yes, no, fine. Uh, There is some irony here, though as Fine herself has also been accused of going too far with works like The Tulip Touch, which deals with bullying, and particularly The Road of Bones, which details a child, Yuri, coming to terms with the horrific results of communism under Stalin. Yuri ends up in a labour camp where he is forced to help build the infamous M56, that's the Russian one, of course, where the bodies of those who died become part of the road's foundations. The more that we look at children's books, then, the less they seem to conform to stereotype. The stereotype captured in statements (coughs) like, Mary wins. One. In the golden age of innocence, children read books about fairies and animals. Or, in Julia Eccleshare's comment, that many modern children's works, crossover ones, put us in danger of losing the absolute essence of children's books. My question is... Did children's literature ever have a golden age of innocence, or indeed, an absolute essence? Alternatively, is it like other topics that have been subject to moral panic? In short, does each generation simply view its own childhood through rose-tinted specks, with the golden age of innocence being nothing but fool's gold, continually fading like fairy dust into an indeterminate past? Certainly, going back to the history of children's books, this notion of a time when children's texts spoke simply of innocence is arrived at only by a very selective reading. Although I have to say many anthologies, and indeed histories of children's books, are coyly selective. In this lecture, I'm going to suggest that this precious conception of children's books has always been false. A very middle-class construction abetted by middle-class printing presses. Not, I'd add, that one can find some alternative, more correct essence of what children's books are, or should be. Though many have tried to identify the the Philosopher's Stone, Harry Potter aside. I'll then juxtapose this traditional conception with what seem to me to be significant shifts towards a recognition of the world's child. First, we need to be aware that children's books as a marketable commodity were a product of a rising middling class, as they were initially known, who themselves came into existence with the growth of capitalism and the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century. They sought to define a new form of childhood, one that fitted their emerging way of life, one based on having property and progeny, the latter to be educated into maintaining the family name and its fortunes. In the process, they deemed much of the older material unacceptable and either removed it or heavily sanitised it. Here, for example, is an early version of a work that some of you might recognise. It's called, variously, The Story of a Grandmother or the Grandmother's Tale. It begins baldly, stating that a woman tells her daughter to take some food to her granny. On the way, she meets Bju, a werewolf, who distracts her in order to get to the granny's house first. Bju then kills the grandmother, placing some of the old woman's flesh and blood on a shelf. When the girl arrives, she's offered some of this food, which she consumes, causing the resident cat to accuse her of being a slut. The girl is then told to undress, which she does in a ritualistic way, where shall I put my apron, my bodice, my stockings, and so on, with the wolf advising her to throw each item on the fire, as she'll no longer need them. 
then to lie in bed with her, I, him. We then have the ritualistic detailing of Granny's strange features, ending with the famous exchange, what big teeth you big mouth you have, the better to eat you with my child. Whereupon the girl declares that she needs the toilet. She won't do it in the bed, as the wolf suggests, but insists on going outside. So the wolf attaches a rope, a leash, to her foot, but after a while he asks, are you making a load out there? And when there's no answer, he goes out and finds she's escaped, reaching home before the wolf can catch her. Yes, Little Red Riding Hood, but not as we know it, apart from maybe, if you know Angela Carter's collection of fairy tales, she reworked it. In this earlier version, the girl needs no male help, just uses her wits and is certainly not drawn attention to, named according to her appearance. To the modern ear, this tale reads like a cross between a a crude joke and an urban myth, warning girls to be careful and keep their wits about them. The term fairy tale itself is notably a, a later coinage to be taken up with a passion by the Victorians who produced ever more sanitised versions of the tale, following the lead of the Brothers Grimm. In the process, bad mothers, who certainly feature in earlier versions like Snow White and Hansel and Gretel, become stepmothers, and all references to sexuality are removed, such as occurs in Rapunzel, where initially the witch finds out about the girl's male visitor because Rapunzel is obviously pregnant. Likewise, nursery rhymes that featured early on, like one that the wolf could have read, Pissabed, pissabed, barley butt, your bum's so heavy you can't get up, <laughs> tended to disappear. Ra- remarkably, though, thanks to the power of the sound, the lilt, and that they were orally transmitted, uh, many do live on. Three blind ma- mice taking a candle to light you to bed and a chopper to chop off your head, and of course, someone saying their prayers, so they get thrown. Uh, down the stairs by Goosey Goosey Gander. So, these more racy rhymes, along with the cruder tales, continued to circulate, thriving particularly in cultures where middle-class literacy made fewer inroads. In fact, advice manuals to such parents warn of servants telling inappropriate tales to their children. And amongst the working class especially, and not only there, the most popular literature was never Alice's Adventures in Wonderland or The Water Babies, but oral tales and Penny Dreadfuls, (coughs) like these, continuing the chapbook tradition with their violent and often prurient stories, some of which were notably seen to be politically subversive, particularly the one on the right. It is a tradition whose milder afterlife can be seen in DC Thompson comics, from Dundee, the Beano and Dandy. I mention all this material because it provides the wider context of children's cultural engagement with the world, the other side of which was children's more clandestine oral culture of rhymes, playground, chants, games and often naughty jokes. And of course, alongside this, there was the more official cultural material to which children were exposed. Bible sermons, improving works, which gave both adults and children a reference point from which the more subversive material was derived. Lewis Carroll does this a lot. Recognition of this wider context is absolutely crucial, especially when people talk disapprovingly about certain things being inappropriate for children. For what they usually have in mind is some quite myopic notion of a child's reading derived from Victorian and Edwardian constructions of children's literature. And the sort of picture I put up earlier of the little girl sitting there reading. Um, And it's out of this that it came to be seen as a genre. Whereas adult books have a range of genres, all children's books are just called generic. Perry Nodelman, a a Canadian critic of the area, is surprisingly sanguine about this situation, that children's literature is a genre of literature whose defining characteristics can be accounted for by conventional assumptions about and constructions of childhood. The issue here is not what children actually like or do need, it is how adult perceptions of what children like or need shape the literature that adults provide for children in ways that provide it with distinct markers allowing it it to be identified as a genre. So it seems peculiar to me to cut out the child quite so blithely and accept the genre's delineation of what children like or need, which thus then endorses these very unempirical markers of what you know, children like to read. It's exclusionary. But it has resulted in some historians dismissing earlier children's books because they don't conform to later expectations, typically beginning with Alice, seen as, you know, the first real book for children. 
Likewise, more recent books are often judged by the same outmoded criteria, with some again found guilty of overstepping that invisible line, implicitly drawn over a century ago, when childhood was revered as this sacred, separate sphere. This was largely because the middle class uh, in the 19th century made it into this separate sphere, with children having distinctive forms of clothing. Recognise these outfits? Called Little Lord Fauntleroy suits, aren't they? Um, separate clothing, their own spaces in nurseries, their special furniture, toys and games, plus their own codes of deportment and forms of speech. And, of course, their own books, such that some writers of the time, like Mrs Molesworth, saw them as being completely separate from adults. They have their own literary rungs. This conception of the ch- child and its literature goes on to the 1960s, I would, I would say, when a generation... Um, that had come to maturity after the social shake-up of the Second World War, a generation nurtured on the welfare state, began to challenge the former <coughs> status quo, opening up the canon of children's books to take more seriously wider, if not worldly, issues of class, gender, ethnicity. Um, issues that the older tales, uh, the Penny Dreadfuls and comics, certainly recognised, but not necessarily in very PC ways. Similar changes were happening in adult literature too, but children's books have always been more complicated for two reasons. First, because adults are the ones who provide the language through which children must position themselves in the world and find forms of self-expression. And second, relatedly, because childhood functions as a a key site of what Jacques Lacan terms the imaginary, which means that the concept of the child is freighted with notions of purity, wholeness, and coherence. So this artist uh, draws his child as a uh, spiritual being, as you can see there. Very common. <clears throat> In the West, such ideas derive from the long and powerful precedent of the Christian Jesus, often figured as a child, who advised those who would gain access to the kingdom of heaven to become as little children. And then later there's the associated romantic figuration of the child, about which, as Wordsworth says, heaven lies. It's therefore difficult to see the child in anything but pure and idealised terms, obscuring more varied representations. This is the essence of one of the most famous books in the area called The Case of Peter Pan, or The Impossibility of Children's Fiction, where Peter Pan, a figuration of the eternal child, a being just broken out of its egg, as he is described, has proven endlessly seductive. It is hardly surprising, then, that the words of so many writers on childhood are infused with this romantic rhetoric, So, Mary Wynne again. Our myths of paradise teach us the truth about childhood. There must be an Eden at the beginning, just as there is in every creation myth. All this makes it very hard discussing anything to do with the child or children's literature, impartially, without being accused of trying to undermine childhood itself. However, as I shall also argue, keeping children on such a false pedestal does them and and us no favours. There's a parallel here uh, in the Victorian idealisation of women, effectively rendering them passive angels in the house. And, of course, that's middle-class women, ladies, I'm talking about. As Rose surmises, could it be that Peter Pan is a little boy who does not grow up, not because he doesn't want to, but because someone else prefers that he shouldn't? It is such a rose-tinted perspective that seems to live on when the media fastens on a children's book that is seen to overstep the mark. As famously did Abigail at the Beach. Anyone know this? Felix Pirani's work. Um, And this happened twice. Peter Hunt has detailed the incident. In December 1988, 52 members of Parliament had signed an early motion requesting Collins to withdraw the book. Subsequently, Rosemary Sandberg, a book editor with Collins, agreed to this, but only if there were proof that any child had been corrupted by it. Uh, there wasn't, so it stayed on the bookshelves until it went out of, out of print. So, is there a problem? Abigail and her daddy go to the beach. He sits, reads and drinks beer, while Abigail builds her amazing sandcastle. However, her creation is threatened by other characters who want to knock down her, her sandcastle. But uh, she manages to ward them off, threatening them with her daddy, who, in, who's in the mafia, and uh, will frazzle your arms and bike is in the secret service when someone else comes up. 
We also infer that her father is reading H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, also about invasion, which Abigail builds into her fantasy. And in the end, I'll skip quite a bit there, um, father and daughter christen the edifice Xanadu, which is ten miles round, um, as they, she talks about her sandcastle, and they depart. 52 MPs, though, thought it was leading children to violent <laughs> And, and alcoholism. <laughs> and the media, with its penchant for exaggeration, declared that Abigail playing in the sand suddenly threatens all the other children. <laughs> of course she doesn't. She is threatened and retaliates. As for alcoholism, well, a Conservative uh, MP comment was, I think that would encourage a young child to think drinking beer was a nice thing to do. Not more likely, I think, encouraging maybe the father to think about drinking beer. But apart from that, this... This comment places, regularly happens, children's books in this separate sphere, a sort of a realm, uh, in a bubble, not recognising that children every day, obviously, see the media telling them how good alcohol is just everywhere. And this, you know, this one book is not really going to be responsible for anything. What about the fact, though, that the father models the pleasure of reading and literature? And along these lines, what are those intertextual references to Coleridge's poem, Kubla Khan, which I'm sure you all got? Um, Here's the famous opening lines, and it's uh, the um, twice five miles round, the sun and the sea when they go home. Um, so it's, it's referencing that. But beyond that, Kublai Khan's also a fragment. Famously, um, Coleridge said he dreamed two to three hundred lines of this fabulous poem. Then this, he was writing it up. This man from Porlock called, and the whole lot went, apart from the, the remaining few lines we have, as he said. Abigail, of course is also has people continually interrupting her creative work, though she's more successful in warding them off than Coleridge. Pirani's book hadn't finished being disrupted, though, for it then reappeared, because it was a very popular book with Cleats in 1996. Um, but then it hit the headlines again. Sainsbury's had banned a children's book from their stores after a shocked mother complained it was too violent for her two-year-old son. And Sainsbury's withdrew it after just four complaints. If you don't know this, Sainsbury's are very good at employing literary experts in their stores to see <laughs> what books they're selling. Fortunately, though, I have to say the book continues to circulate. I've read it you know, countless times to kids, and it's a very enjoyable book in many ways. What's significant here is that, though, despite the media jamboree, only four people objected. Peter Hunt asks, one wonders whether four complaints about, for example, the sugar content of Sainsbury's yogurts would have been sufficient <laughs> to remove all those from the shelves. <laughs> also, it seems that none of those that complained was a child. Was a child ever consulted, I, I wonder. So there are three sort of disruptive areas here. Firstly, the problem is Abigail is not Arthur, i.e. she's not a boy. There's a famous book called Angry Arthur, which I don't know if anyone knows, very angry boy, and there's Max and Where the Wild Things Are, another very angry boy. So boys can be aggressive and violent, but girls cannot. Second, it's not a proper family. It looks like it could be a single parent. We don't know this, but, you know, just inferring what could be wrong with this book. And third, he drinks. Although drinking occurs in many other children's texts, I just put it Tom Brown's school days, Anne of, Anne of Green Gables, famous episode, Treasure Island, Narnia, Hobbit, fairy stories, and famously, Dumbo, you might remember that scene. Some authors have responded in quite a canny way uh, when accused of this. And uh, one was Beatrix Potter with her nursery rhymes. Uh, the, the cider making going on here. So she said, yes, I'll change it. So she changed it to cowslip wine, which I thought was rather nice. Before I move on, I want to contrast Abigail with a much more popular but similar book, but one that has not received the criticism of the former. I don't know if people know this one. Come away from the water, Shirley? No. Okay, she's taken to the coast with her rather... Sorry, the pictures aren't very good here. With her rather boring, mundane parents. But she has two parents, though one is smoking a pipe here, I have to say. Uh, so, probably, she goes to the beach, uh, and the pictures are juxtaposed. So they're saying, mind you, don't get filthy tar on your shoes. And she's off having adventures with Jolly Jack Tars, in fact, with her dog. Um, and she does go looking for a fight. Don't stroke that dog, you don't know where it's been. But she's actually there. Stabbing, biting, hair pulling, drowning, crushing, it's all going on. Whereas Abigail uh, uses only her wits, her tongue, to avoid trouble. But this one was okay. So girls could be seen, but not heard, it seems, um, being violent. 
I mentioned Abigail in some detail to indicate the prejudices that impede any tempered evaluation of children's books. And the prejudices are there all the time. As most recently, the picture book, I don't know if you know this one, Antanga Makes Three, as it says, between 2006 and 10, the most consistently challenged book in the United States. You might know it's based on a true story about two male penguins in New York Zoo who, as a pair, built a nest, hatched an egg and raised a chick, Tango. Ideologically, though, many saw the book as having a more nefarious purpose. You're probably ahead of me. Single-sex marriage and homosexuality being promoted and therefore eroding traditional family values and heterosexuality. The main point, then, is that this imaginary child, like the angel in the house or the traditional macho hero, is a generic construction far removed from real children, many of whom have a quite sophisticated awareness of adult issues, as Caroline Stedman showed in a lovely book called The Tidy House, Little Girls Writing, where she, three girls approached and wanted their story writing, council house, working class girls, and uh, she wrote it down. It's quite a long story, but it's not what you conventionally think of as a children's book. It's about all sorts of um, nitty-gritty issues. So the, the point I generally make about that is that children just are far are keen to, I think, engage with matters that concern adults, matters of the adult world, at their own level, and, you know, will reject anything that's boring or whatever. Going back to my earlier points, then, I'm suggesting that children's literature is, is a very distorted construct, <coughs> but one that has become almost naturalised, such that any attempts to write outside the box, which is quite a narrow one, risk vilification. Again, I'll quote Nodelman, stating that the issue is not what children do actually like or need. It is how adult perceptions of what they like or need shape the literature. And more worryingly, these perceptions are not just those of adults, but of powerful international publishing corporations, which seek to move children's books towards the status quo, that is, to be generally white, middle class, and preferably clearly gendered. When authors do attempt to break the rules, it is surprising how often there is pressure from publishers um, to acquiesce. Uh, The word press and pressure, I think, are interestingly cognates. So, um, oh, I skipped that one. Yes, this is how the world should be. Clearly gendered. (laughs) So you know what to buy for your progeny. Um, Uh Ursula Le Guin is an example of the sort of thing I'm talking about. She deliberately described her main character, Geda Wizard, as dark-skinned. But if you look at the covers of the books about him, um, it doesn't seem to have transferred. He has dark hair, I suppose. Um, more recently, there was a book uh, by Justine Labellestier called Liar, um, where this was the cover representation, and this author protested vociferously that the character is black, and she actually got a result, made quite a hoo-ha over it, and they changed the cover to this. Um, and Bloomsbury did actually apologise, um, got quite a bit of publicity as well. To return to my main point then, the idea is that there is any essence of children's books is, is a fantasy, Uh, but it is one that has been honed over time alongside ever more fine-grained attempts to define the child, coming up with new categories like toddler, teenager, young adult, each being seen to require, then, its own special literature suited for its particular stage of development. Equally, there's an industry of works addressing why children do not seem to fit these childhood categories. It's become quite a thing, a crisis in childhood. There's a few titles I've put up there. Generally, authors of such works offer rather simplistic causes, I find these, Uh, but I quite like Neil Postman's, quite an early one there, The Disappearance of Childhood. He also argues that modern childhood emerged with the printing press, but in a rather monocausal way. He doesn't link it, say, to a a class-based society. He writes, From print onward, the young would have to become adults, and they would have to do it by learning to read through education. He reasons that whereas formerly young people could access knowledge directly sitting next to Nelly, they now had to spend time learning a symbol system. Consequently, children became pupils under masters and were thereby removed from adult society for extended periods. Children therefore became belittled and divorced from mainstream society in a separate sphere, set apart from adult knowledge, with its, obviously, adult books. Postman, though, called his book The Disappearance of Childhood since he believed that modern visual culture was undermining this adult-only realm and in the process destroying childhood. 
He was chiefly talking about TV then, but of course the internet and social media have made all knowledge more accessible without restriction and made children of this revolution the ones most adept at manipulating the technology. Unfortunately, Postman doesn't explore the idea that this might produce a new form of childhood, one where the young might be empowered rather than disempowered by technology, as literacy was the case. He simply bemoans its loss. The romantic notion, I think. However, if this general shift has been partly responsible for undermining the traditional divide between adult and child, without falling into the trap of technological determinism, there have been several other sociological factors to take into account, with the traditional coordinates of adulthood being eroded. The notion of a job for life, the framework of the nuclear family, unproblematic sense of national identity, welfare state, environmental stability, security against terrorism, and despite longevity increasing, the threat of maturity bringing dementia in its wake. It's what Ulrich Beck famously called the risk society. Um, But Heinz Hengst has some very poignant words on this, I thought. Um, Children are new arrivals in societies and cultures in which adults are not really at home either. So I think the the good news is that um, uh, children and adults are in the same boat, but they've all slightly lost charge of of where they're going, perhaps. They're all, everyone's slightly more dependent than they used to be. It is these wider factors that have made adolescence, traditionally a time of storm and stress, into something, I think, beyond an age category, an amorphous and risky space that many people feel they now inhabit as human becomings. The attempt to capture this space in words like, you know, adultification, adulthood, no, what's the word? Puts it the other way. There's a. Uh... No, no. I'll come back to it. It'll come back to me. And advances in things like cosmetic surgery have made this prolongation of youth even more feasible. Along, although the anonymity of, I suppose, of social media uh, have even taken that away. You can be anyone, you could be any age or gender or ethnicity or whatever. The hero of Frank Cottrell Boyce's Cosmic. Um, who's a lad who's six foot plus tall, puts it very well. Everyone lies about their age. Adults pretend to be younger. Teenagers pretend to be older. Children wish they were grown up. Grown-ups wish they were children. So, you know, adolescence is is the place to be, I think, for people. Everyone tends to dress that way and all sorts. Unfortunately, as it's the child that's in question here, there are extra problems, though, going back to this risk society. For it's the child that people usually turn to as a point of stability, a bastion of sanity, if not a saviour figure. People therefore tend to cling to this imaginary figure all the more desperately, protesting whenever it seems compromised in any way. And of course the roots of our own individual sense of identity are involved here, the child within each of us. This I think explains some of the overreactions to any children's book that seem to step out of line, as noted earlier. It has therefore been extremely hard to open up more of a space for childhood in children's books and elsewhere, as the child is such a powerful universal symbol. But we don't want a universal symbol of a child. We want world's children, plural. And I do think the tide has turned beginning in the 1990s as a result of the sort of sociological factors I mentioned earlier. It can be seen in the way that a number of topics, some of which had long been taboo uh, in children's books, have now become acceptable again. It's obvious, for example, in the more open and earthy attitude to bodies and their functions, as often explored in Roald Dahl's works first, and then in classics like The Story of a Mole Who Knew It Was None of His Business, investigating different types of poo after he's been pooed upon. Aside from other scatological works, you can see why these appear. Um, The Day My Bum Went Psycho, very popular. Um, And an obsession with underwear, particularly the Adventures of Captain Underpants, very, very worldwide popular book. Or indeed, picture books discussing uh, where babies come from. Uh, Babette Cole's classic on this, which is uh, a feast of delights about how it can be done in new Kama Sutra ways. (laughs) Some adults like, some won't read it to their children. But it needs to be noted that such openness is always hard fought, I want to say, with international publishing conglomerates often working in the opposite direction, as I mentioned earlier. There was a a highly successful German author, Rotraut Berner, her Wimmelbuchen, which is sort of books teeming with characters. Um, She had a breakthrough, she thought, with an American market. 
but the American publishers objected to the nakedness. Where is this? Now you have to look very carefully there, um, as this woman is, and there's a close-up, to find that there's not actually a naked people, but cartoon versions of figures in artworks, such as might be viewed in any museum or even seen in public. Bravely, Berner told them to forget it, and being a bestseller elsewhere, she could. Obviously, most authors can't and have to do what they're told to. So, again, the area is, is likely... To, it's repeatedly being closed down as it's opened up, I think. And this is where it's interesting, the part that many smaller independent publishers play in, in producing more innovative works. Um, the French author Michel Tournier, who um, writes for adults and children, but tries to write for both... He calls it the, the Walt Disney factory that he feels he's fighting against. So it's of note, I think, that Bloomsbury uh, launched Harry Potter and uh, David Fickling published The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Uh, with the time, I'd like to discuss the huge variety of subjects uh, now available in children's books. I've mentioned one, but I uh, haven't, so I'm, I'm going to talk about one text, but I'll just put up some instances. I mean, books on the Holocaust, this was a completely taboo area until this was seen as the first a picture book in 1985 by uh, Roberto Innocenti, an Italian author. And it went worldwide, and eventually he was very pleased that a German version appeared of that. Uh, and there have been other ones too. The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, which is hugely overrated, I think, <laughs> rather naive. We're talking about romantic children, but never mind. And the far better, the Australian uh, author Book Thief. Uh, brilliant book, I think. Um, Refugees from other genocides. I mean, they go from picture books up to ones for older children. So this was one about a Rwandan uh, boy and Benjamin Zephaniah um, set in Ethiopia, or from Ethiopia. Um, books on sexual orientation. I just put up one of each. I mean, there's, there's, there's a huge market in these now. Uh, on sexual abuse. Again, going from very young children, but children you want to protect from abuse. So, you know, these books have to be written, sensitively done. And one that uh, uses... Beatrix Potter format to talk about abuse. Um, new ways of being male. I mean, the, these, again, I think were very new in the 1990s. Billy Elliot, you probably know from the film. Melvin Burgess did the film, sorry, the book version of it. And David Skellig is an author who often has very um, sensitive boy characters in it. Uh, but then they're juxtaposed with um, bullies, basically. Um, I, and there's many more, racism, bullying, self-harming, anorexia, the list goes on and on. Not just issue books, you know, that deal with it in a sort of one-focused way, but <coughs> books that have whole rounded characters in where that issue crops up. So the appearance of such topics, I think, is part of a, a slow process by which childhood is being seen less as this separate sphere with age divisions waning. Um, and it's been captured in this term, crossover books. Um, which was coined in the 1990s. But it wants clarification. So there are various definitions. Here's one from Sandra Beckett. Crossover literature refers to literature that crosses from child to adult or adult to child audiences. Robinson Crusoe, um, Watership Down, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but there's another definition by Judith Rose that I prefer. <coughs> Books that blur the lines between children and adult categories. The former depends on, I think, this polarisation of adult and child. They stay in the same place, where the latter actually qu queries the age categorizations. Just as most readers, I hope, don't think of themselves as having to do much crossing over when they read books about people of different nationalities, classes or sexual orientations. And many people do this when they're young. And Melvin Bragg, talking about his reading talked about going from Biggles to D.H. Lawrence, from Blyton's Famous Five to John Steinbeck. You know, it's it seen as acceptable in the young to more of an extent. But I think people are, older people, are relaxing now into the idea that they too can read um, these books and not seem that they're somehow um, reverted to childhood. You, know. you don't have to give up childish things. There are still worries, though, which again play into the general crisis of childhood. There are those who fear that this... Uh, is leading to infantilisation. Um, A.S. Byer. Ms. Rowling, I think, speaks to an adult generation that hasn't known and doesn't care about mystery. They're inhabitants of urban jungles, not of the real wild. They don't have the skills to tell ersatz magic from the real thing. For as children, they daily invested the ersatz with what imagination they had. I'm going to resist commenting on that. Over to you. And then from the other side, those that argue that 
we've got the opposite, adultification. They're being made to grow up too soon. And this is Julia Eccleshare again, the quote I put up before. And particularly crossover books, she thinks they might destroy the absolute essence of children's books so that we end up with no children's books aimed solely at children. I just wonder, you know, what's this aimed solely at children? Adults write books, you know, publishers are adults, editors, librarians, teachers. Most children's books are bought by adults. You know, there is no such thing as one that's aimed solely at children. So, to be clear, it seems to me that the crossover phenomenon marks a healthy sharing of a great range of books, just as we've seen with less contention um, with films. Uh, Toy Story, Stuff for All, Woody. It's not a laser, it's a, it's a little light bulb that blinks. What's with him? Laser envy. You know, that's in there. Some of the audience will laugh, some won't. They'll enjoy other bits. But everyone's in there together. So a brilliant author like Sean Tan, uh, Australian, who's half Chinese actually, can produce works that are arresting for any reader. And as he says, when I draw pictures and make up stories, they don't necessitate a consideration for any particular audience. And asserts there is no reason why a 32-page illustrated story can't have equal appeal for teenagers or adults as they do for children. Picture books, notably, have always been an area more likely to breach the boundaries, to cross over. The reason being that, like films and pantomime, their audience more naturally straddles or rides roughshod over age categories. It is for people to share, and there's bits built in there. And no one's really, really bothered. And there's some incredibly innovative picture books I'd like to go into, but I haven't time. So I'll just put up a couple of Sean Tans. Uh, This one young girl, and it's about depression really, but it's so beautifully done. The Lost Thing is about, well, it's about identity, again about refugee status, belonging, home, all sorts of things. And they're quite profound. But to finish, although it's a while yet, uh, I'd like to take a look at what was the first book to be marketed in crossover terms, which was The Curious Incident uh, by Mark Haddon in 2003. Because I think it cleverly plays around with this concept And in the process, I think it undermines the very attempt to segregate and segment the book's respective audiences. In this way, the child is not lost, but is instead sensitively shown alongside the equally challenged adults, as the world's child and world's adult both strive to make sense of the complex world they share. Do most people know this book? Yes. Oh, good. Christopher Boone, the main character, introduces himself to us and tells his story, in which, as his chosen title indicates, he sees himself as the hero of an adventure, as he puts it towards the end. And I know I can do this, become a scientist, because I went to London on my own, because I solved the mystery of who killed Wellington, and I found my mother, and I was brave, and I wrote a book, and that means I can do anything. As this extract shows, he comes across as a very naive 15-year-old, and as we learn from his narrative, he has certain problems, making us suspect that he suffers from Asperger's syndrome, though Christopher never mentions it by name. Thus, he, lives, he likes to live in a world of facts, and he cannot deal with metaphors. The word metaphor means carrying something from one place to another, and it comes from the Greek, and it's when you describe something by using a word for something that it isn't. This means that the word metaphor is a metaphor. I think it should be called a lie. <laughs> he mentions a few metaphors before summarily rejecting them. A pig is not like a day and people do not have skeletons in their cupboards. Christopher is a mixture, a curious pastiche of the traditional fictional child and a being who is incomprehensible, alien, which chimes with some other recent figurations of the adolescent. Uh, My son is an alien. and This one was actually written by someone with Asperger's, Lou Jackson. Freaks, Geeks and Asperger's Syndrome, a user guide to adolescence. But the terms are fudged there, you know. (coughs) <coughs> which I think interesting. Of course, most readers will take a superior attitude to Christopher's attempt to play the traditional child hero, trapped in his childish Sherlock Holmesian world of puzzles, erroneously trying to convince us that he has solved what has become, in his mind, the central mystery, a canny side. In fact, he's done no such thing. His father simply confesses to the who done it, he done it. More generally, Christopher misses a lot of what is going on around him in emotional, relational terms, which, as we can see, is what metaphors are all about. Linking often disparate things, blurring divisions, showing that things both are and are not at the same time. To adopt the metaphorical language that Christopher despises, the mystery really is a dead dog. 
whereas the elephant in the room eludes him, the relation between his parents and their sometime partners eludes him completely. I, he cannot see that they really do, figuratively of course, have some skeletons in their cupboards. Christopher's preference for numbering his chapters using prime numbers, 2, 3, 5, 7, 11 and so on, is indicative of these omissions, though he claims to see everything. Numbers of animals in fields, designer holes in shoes and so on. However, he likes prime numbers, he informs us, because they are what is left when you've taken all the patterns away. Hence, they are like life. They are very logical. Now, for most of us, they are exactly what life isn't about, by omitting all the patterns, the interconnectedness. But, of course, prime numbers encapsulate exactly that separateness, shown in the fact that they are indivisible by any number other than one. They're integers, integral, complete in themselves, which is what appeals to Christopher, who complains that his own name is a metaphor. It means carrying Christ, and it comes from the Greek. Mother used to say that it meant Christopher was a nice name because it was a story about being kind and helpful. But I do not want my name to mean a story about being kind and helpful. I want my name to mean me. That is, he wants meaning to be stable, the word to equal the thing, like an integer, integral to itself. The irony, of course, is that in order to maintain his seeming independence, to be the lone I who can do anything, Christopher depends on the support of various others, all the stuff that goes on in between the prime numbers, in fact. Though he could not say it, prime numbers are a metaphorical source of comfort for him, as are a number of his dreams, like imagining himself happily alone in a submersible deep under the sea, or, one of his favourites, of being in a world where most of the population has succumbed to a disease. Nearly everyone on the earth is dead because they have caught a virus, one of his favourites, like a computer virus. And people catch it because of the meaning of something an infected person says and the meaning of what they do with their faces when they say it. Then they just sit on the sofa and do nothing and so they die. In contrast to E.M. Forster's famous line, only connect, Christopher thus dreams of the opposite, disconnection. He wants a world where all those messy, indeterminate connections between people and where squidgy metaphorical links don't happen. In mathematical terms, he wants clear equations, final solutions, a neat QED, which are the novel's final words. Ironically, Christopher's utopian dream is exactly the subject matter of E.M. Forster's famous science fiction dystopia, The Machine Stops, if anyone knows it, where everyone is completely isolated. So in many ways, he's an enigmatic figure in the spirit of children like Caspar Hauser, um, Idiosanos and others. But the parallel that comes most clearly to mind is the figure of Peter Pan. Peter Pan also stands apart and resolutely refuses any connection with others, that is, with families or relationships. Keep back, lady, he tells Mrs. Darling. No one's going to catch me and make me a man. He too can't bear to be touched. Haddon has placed such a figure in a modern world context, producing a child that refuses easy figuration, especially as he presents us with abilities that go beyond our own understanding. Again, we might draw a parallel with the disarming ease with which many modern <clears throat> children manipulate technology. So we appear like dunces in our inability to decode pages like these of fiercely non-metaphorical symbols. Christopher undermines our sense of adult superiority, especially in definitions of adulthood, <coughs> that invoke the Cartesian ego, I think, therefore I am, or Piaget's definition of uh, the pinnacle of development and the ability to perform formal operations, areas where Christopher is frighteningly proficient, as he demonstrates, pointing up human fallibility. The Bible says, thou shalt not kill, but there were the Crusades and two world wars and the Gulf War, and there were Christians killing people in all of them. And then there's the dog that his father killed. For, it needs to be said, if Christopher undoes our traditional notions of childhood, then the adults in the book also make us query what it means to be grown up, as we become caught up in their emotionally entangled lives. Lives, of course, <laughs> that he largely hops over on the stepping stones of his prime numbers. But undoubtedly, his own adventures are forever framed by the adult relationships around him. And indeed, he's deeply implicated and sometimes instrumental in their unfolding. In short, through Christopher, the whole adult-child binary is queried. What's a child? What is adult? 
and we come to realise how inextricably intertwined the two spheres are. Though the book's marketed as a crossover, it doesn't simply allow each respective side to read the book in its own way, temporarily swapping places. Rather, it confounds, I would suggest, the whole artificial notion of separate spheres or of age-bound reading experiences. In conclusion, then, I would contend that we are, in many respects, returning to a time when age was far less a barrier to one's participation in society and, as a consequence, children's literature has itself become a far more open (coughs) and inclusive space to work in. Today, children's books deal with many issues that have just been off-limits for too long and some brand-new issues as well concerning the impact of social media, cosmetic surgery and the like. Children's literature now also recognises a far wider audience in terms of class, gender, ethnicity and nationality. The world's children get more of a look in. However, it also needs emphasising that this is a hard-won struggle, as I've intimated. The Disney factory approach, as Tournier termed it, often works against innovation, preferring the status quo, books with white protagonists, say. Fortunately, many of the smaller presses have provided outlets for more cutting-edge work. And some nations, we were talking earlier about Scandinavian countries, have a much more forward-looking policy. There's also the related fact that both Britain and America are particularly good at exporting their works to foreign markets, as though representing the world, but are very poor at importing these other voices, especially when they challenge certain sensibilities around nakedness, say, which is quite unproblematic in many European nations particularly Scandinavian ones. It should further be noted that many countries, especially in Africa, South America and Middle and Far East, do not even have the infrastructure to sustain a healthy children's publication programme, though their oral traditions might be extensive. Many of them, it could be argued, therefore suffer from sometimes inappropriate Western versions of childhood being thrust upon them. Cultural imperialism, and I suppose it's mainly from America, and we play our part. And in other cultures, the battle over, say, Christian versus Muslim versions of appropriate children's books um, is hotly contested. I know about the Turkish case there in particular, which is fraught. Fortunately, the huge success of children's literature's development since the 1990s um, has meant that it now has some economic clout, thanks in large part to that wizard Harry, who is the nearest thing to a world child on the planet. 450 million copies sold in, I think that was about 2011. Moreover, Rowling's creation was seen to launch the crossover phenomenon, though it had always existed to some extent. But the involvement of adults, not just as producers of children's literature, but as fellow readers, has made it more culturally significant too. It now attracts some of the very best writing and artistic talent globally. So it's no longer the poor relation with children's authors being asked, when are you going to write a proper book, you know? While this is mostly good news, it needs to be put in the context of the fact that for many world children, books are an undreamt of luxury, food, shelter, home clearly taking priority. But on the other hand, at least those more fortunate children now have a wider window on the world with children's books becoming less blind to what other media daily present them with, while also offering healthy, healthy escapism, of course. And social media have just taken things into a whole different realm that I can hardly mention, but I'll just briefly mention it. Um, Books available in other formats, e-formats, but very many innovative book apps now which take books into totally different areas. So they link up with games, quizzes, um, hyperlinks to elsewhere, putting yourself in the story, whatever. Um, And even... Traditional books, um, the child reader of Abigail at the Beach, say, can now have a voice in texting back through this mechanism, at least making their voice heard, I think, even if it's um, not always heeded. I'll stop there.